You're listening to the Tech Bytes podcast from the Packard Pushers. We're sponsored today by Aruba, a Hewlett Packard enterprise company. And we're going to get into a few different topics, including the role of identity and security and why identity is a critical component of zero trust approach to network access. We're also going to discuss SASE or the Secure Access Services Edge, just the latest and greatest term from the analyst buzzword factory. And we're going to raise some questions that network engineers should be asking about SASE as they figure out how to protect users and apps at home and branches on-prem in the cloud and everywhere. Our guest from Aruba is John Green. He is the Chief Security Technologist. John, welcome to the podcast. So let's kick it off. What role does user identity play in a zero trust approach? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, if we look at historically at how we've done networking in the past, you know, we, we haven't really focused on identity in the past. We've sort of said, once you get presence on a network, um, you just start transmitting packets and, and the, the job of the network is to move those packets around. Um, packet pushers. Uh, to, to, <laughs> well done. Yeah, oh, yeah not, to, not, to, not to put it <laughs> right. You know, and that's led to some of the security issues that we see these days, where those networks were really never designed to be secure in the in the first place. So going back to the history of, of IP networking. Um, so, so what we'd like to do now, you know, this idea of zero trust came out uh, probably about 2008 or so, and the idea then was. Just because you have presence on some network segment, you know, you're plugged into an Ethernet port, you're connected to a Wi-Fi network, and, and so on, that shouldn't give you any automatic access to services. We used to look at sort of the internal network or the intranet, and the intranet as being two different networks. The intranet was secure and safe because we only had authorized users on it, and the internet was dangerous because we didn't really know what was what was going on there. And separating those two, we had a, some kind of security perimeter, usually a firewall, maybe maybe more. What we're looking at more and more these days inside of enterprise networks is those networks shouldn't be trusted. Um, in fact, we, we want some form of authentication, identification, uh, authorization before we're going to grant any sort of access uh, to services. And that's something that can happen at the application level. It's something that can happen down at the at the device or at the at the network level, kind of depending on the capabilities of those um, of those types of devices and, and and the applications themselves. I think the interesting thing here is that Aruba has been right at the forefront of this user authentication with the ClearPass product. You've been there for what over ten years now, I think. We have. Yeah. So zero trust is not new to you. Like other companies had to go out and acquire or build or develop it internally on their own. Whereas part of the Wi-Fi heritage of Aruba is that you always had this zero trust thing right at the start because Wi-Fi was always like, you've got to authenticate to, to connect to the Wi-Fi was always a key feature from right the way back. I think the zero trust is actually a transition, though, because it stops just being, oh, I'm connecting to the Wi-Fi and therefore it's a Wi-Fi specific thing. It's kind of a a universal thing. And it's doubly important now compared to what it was two years ago, because people aren't coming back to work or some of them are, some of them aren't, or we're going to be in a situation where it's much more distributed. I call it distributed work. Some people call it hybrid working, blah, 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 whatever. Um, But the key here is that people aren't going to be plugged into the wired network and therefore trusted because they're in a physical premise. The the answer here is the edge of the network is somewhere. They they shouldn't be trusted just because they can get into a building and and connect to a physical network anyway. Um, That's been a common uh, attack technique that, you know, pen testers have used for, for years now is, 
Um, when people are coming back from lunch, you know, hold your badge backwards and be on, talking on the phone. Somebody will happily open that door for you and uh, and hold it for you so you can come in. Mm-hmm. And once you're in, you've kind of you're, you're in at that point. So this idea of zero trust applies just as much to the Wi-Fi network as it does to the to the wired network. Now it's more difficult on the wired network. Usually, people have already built these networks. They haven't implemented things like 802.1x port authentication, and doing mm-hmm. so can be a challenge. Um, you know, if, if, with technologies like ClearPass, you know you, that you mentioned, we try to make that easier. We try to have sort of fallback pathways. Hey, if, if 802.1x fails, then then take this fallback um, posture. But you know, before that, or without those types of technologies, that can be a difficult transition. Whereas with Wi-Fi. That's just that's just built in. Yeah, it's built into the the Wi-Fi at the physical layer. So if if we're talking about moving authentication to anywhere, mm-hmm. how does that work? So if I'm an if I'm a network engineer and my CIO is saying to me, "We've got this security risk. People are distributed workers all over the place. How am I going to authenticate users at home? How does a Ruber address that?" So two answers to that. When you're at home and you're needing access back into enterprise services that sit back in a corporate data center somewhere, and that that's still, despite the rush to the cloud, those sorts of things still exist. Um, mm. Traditional VPN is one answer to that. And there's a newer approach that some people call zero trust network access or ZTNA. That is a, a another way of doing that. And it, in, in actuality, if you look at ZTNA, it's kind of going back to the SSL VPN days. That's that's a little bit what it what it looks like, but it's mm-hmm. essentially tunneling tunneling things over SSL, but on a per per application basis. So, taking some of the um, almost a CASB approach, like you would use for for cloud services, and applying it to to corporate access. But we still see an awful lot of traditional VPN, or you know, in, in Aruba's case, we provide a product called the Remote Access Point, which says. It, think of it like a, a a wired and a Wi-Fi access point with a hardware VPN client built into okay, it right. that, that you hand to an employee. That so that's a, a common way of, of seeing things out there. For things in the cloud, um, the cloud, you know, fortunately because it's on the public internet, has always been built for this type of thing. And so you you know the typical mo- method there is single sign-on portals. You know, you you go to a web application, you put in you know your email address, and it says ah. I recognize you, you're a single sign-on enabled user, redirect you back to your corporate single sign-on portal, and then you can go and, and, and hit that site. There are zero trust networking companies out there, and that is their only product. Correct. To put a web page in front of an existing web app and do the authentication separately. And from- that's, that's why zero trust yeah. is one of these terms that, you know, it, it means a lot of things to a lot of people. There, there is a there is a definition that Forrester coined, and then they expanded on that. Um, but the industry has taken that and run with it. And so I, I always try to bring it back to that, that definition of just because you're connected to a particular network segment doesn't mean you have access to, to services. So that's what, what about, trust means. I think it's also true that we're also in a situation where we still have a lot of legacy devices, printers, IOT, uh, you know, sensors are coming onto the networks that may not support dynamic authentication. Does Aruba handle that? We do, and that's something we're going to be dealing with for a very long time. So there is there is a application-centric view of zero trust, which says move it all to the application layer. That ignores all of those, those types of devices that you just mentioned. And for that, mm. we have to apply something at the network layer. In the old days, we called it NAC, Network Access Control. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sort of the industry went off on a tangent of what NAC meant and thought it was all about endpoint posture and that sort of thing. So I think the, the zero trust naming uh, is probably a better 
term for it without confusing the issue too much. But effectively, we want to go through a process of identifying what's on the network, putting some type of authentication in place. And now that that might not be 802.1x. It might just simply be MAC address. And we, we all know MAC addresses aren't, aren't safe and they're not a safe authentication token. But if I back that up with an authorization profile that says, okay, we've identified you as a printer. The only thing we're going to let you do is printer things. You're going to talk to the, the, the print server and, and nothing more. Mm. And if we ever see you do anything more, you know, that's a security incident. We've at least lim- limited the damage that somebody can do if they, if they try to break that, that system. But that also implies you've got the visibility to be watching that endpoint device and seeing what kind of traffic it's sending across the network. We do. And that, that's where you know, Wi-Fi devices, again, coming back to that, makes it really easy because you're bringing it back to a device that has deep packet inspection um, built into that. With wired networks, you know, the, 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 you've got varying capabilities there, but um, we have ways of doing things like tunneling traffic back to inspection points um, within, a, within a corporate network for devices that might be less trusted. So uh, the key to that, though, is I want to configure, say, a 48-port switch and say every port is the same depending on what I plug into it, that's going to determine the behavior. So if it's a corporate laptop with a certificate at the other end, and I've got really good solid user identity for, for what's at the other end of that link, I'm just going to switch that traffic onto a, you know, a corporate VLAN normally. If it's something that I have much less confidence in, I'm going to tunnel that back to something that can either do inspection or, or further enforcement. So I had teased Sassy at the beginning of the podcast and mm-hmm. analysts and vendors both are talking a lot about it. Um, one of the key benefits of saying is because we have these security and authentication services in the cloud, you don't have to backhaul traffic from like a branch or a home office for that in- security inspection layer. But do you see Sassy as sort of the all or nothing proposal? Like we're all going there or are there reasons to still have some security infrastructure on premises? We, we can't, it can't be all or nothing. Um, Sassy makes a huge amount of sense when you've got cloud-hosted applications. So, I mean, uh, sitting here as an HPE employee, we use Office 365 extensively. It would be silly for me to VPN my Office 365 traffic back to a corporate data center, send it through whatever sort of processing is going to happen there, and then send it back out to the internet. Um, That negates a lot of the benefits of having it in the cloud in the first place. Yet there's still security risk there. Um, So we we have a bunch of partnerships with... um, different SASE type companies to provide those security services in the cloud. And, and for cloud-hosted applications, that makes a huge amount of sense. But there are still applications that live in inside the corporation. And for those, it, it makes little sense to send those off to a, a SASE inspection point when I'm only going to send it back down inside the, the corporation again, especially if it's not web traffic. Uh, the SASE engines t- tend to mostly be focused around web traffic and we've got, you know, we've got SAP thick clients in some cases inside the company still running. Mm-hmm. I don't know that they know what to do with that type of traffic. So, no, I think I think it very much makes sense to um, mm. look at what's the destination of this traffic and where does it need to go from from here. Um, we look at it from, you know, looking at the branch office, for example, with SD WAN. There's a lot more organizations now using internet transport to get, you know, wide area networking services. Um, there, it makes a lot of sense to have the intelligence to say, this is a uh, application, it's voice over IP, I want to send it directly out to the internet, no security services at all, because there's there's such latency sensitivity, versus this other application, I actually want to forward this to Zscaler, so check the box, send it to Zscaler, and, yeah. and have it done that way. And a there's third a use case that says, backhaul this back to my corporate data center. There is a tension between the two ways to do SaaS, I think, and that is... 
there are companies like Zscaler where you send the traffic in and they can do this amazing inspection and deep analysis and they have mystical magic that detects the bad things going on. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that you also need to do it at the edge because in the real world, the real world is messy and incomplete and there are devices that don't fit the model. So you're sort of saying Ruby's got a solution that does both. If you want to do the centralized, run it through a CASB company like Zscaler, then you can. But if you also need to support the features that the real world has and will have for the foreseeable future, there's a place for Sassy at the edge. I, th- I think that's the case. I, mm-hmm. I think, you know, we as Aruba, were primarily network infrastructure and network transport and, and moving the packets around to where they, they need to go. We're not providing those types of services like a Zscaler uh, provides, but we have really intelligent ways to get traffic to Zscaler if that's where you want to send it. And, and it's, it's literally one click kind of integration. What do you see as the relationship between Zero Trust and SASE? Are they separate? Do they need to be somehow integrated? I think they're really talking about separate things because SASE is really about where does the security happen? And Zero Trust is kind of a framework for, it's almost more of a way to think about your network and, and saying, you know, these things can't be trusted and I have to assume there's attackers in this, this part of the network. They're complementary to each other and they're both driven off of identity very often. You, you, can, you can certainly do a lot more with SASE if you can attach a user identity to um, you know, an individual network stream versus having kind of generic IP traffic um, flowing in. But I think they really are separate things. Are there cases where ZTNA and SASE may not make sense? I think there's still a lot of legacy applications that are in corporate environments and probably will be for a very long time. We can embrace pieces of zero trust. And I've, I've talked about some of that here of saying, let's, let's focus on at the network level, what do we let in and what do we not let in? we may not be able to get up into the application layer. We may not have, it may not be a web application. It might not have single sign-on capabilities. So there's pieces that we can put in there, but maybe not the full, you know, a lot of people think Google Beyond Corp when they think zero trust. Um, and that's that's beyond the reach of a lot of types of applications. So there's there are pieces that we can embrace um, kind, of, kind of everywhere. SASE, again, I think it makes sense when you have cloud-hosted applications. I don't know about the use case when you say everything stays on-prem or a majority of traffic stays on-prem. It, it really is kind of customer dependent and, and dependent on the, the architecture people have deployed. It's interesting, isn't it? Because there's so much about SD-WAN that is good and powerful. The ROI is clearly there. The ability to do new things with your WAN, to use public WAN, to use low-cost bandwidth instead of high-cost bandwidth and that sort of stuff. And yet when we move into the security part, it starts to get a bit messed up in a way. It does. And that's that's kind of why I think we, we liked seeing that intelligence in branch office sites where you can say, I need to be able to examine what my network traffic looks like and, right. and set up policies to say, these are the things that, that, that need to take place. It's nothing new, right? We've been doing policy-based routing for a very long time. Hmm. What's new with SD-WAN is kind of centralized orchestration of that to where you can now, we, we call it business intent overlays of saying, hey, this is my critical corporate traffic. This is my latency sensitive VoIP traffic and having a much more auto, automated way of, of applying those types of policies. That's what we didn't have in the past. It's kind of weird that we always had the the bits like the PFR, the IPsec VPNs. We had all the bits to make SD-WAN. We just never got to making software that would, it's not exactly true by the way, but if we had have used a centralized software 
controller to configure all those things, we would have had SD-WAN a lot sooner, perhaps. It's really yeah, it's, not it's that not, much. It's not entirely true. The, the, yeah. the deep packet inspection and the, app, the application identification is certainly somewhat newer. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, the, the raw bits we've we've had for a very long time, but it, it would be painful to configure an enterprise-size uh, network in that way mm. 20 years ago. As we hit the end of this, thanks so much. It's been an interesting discussion. Now, Aruba Atmosphere is coming up. We're getting into conference season and there's lots of events coming on. Are you speaking at Aruba Atmosphere this year? Should people come along and hear you yibbity yabba? They should always come, even if not for me. Um, I won't be the most interesting speaker there this year. I'm doing, I'm doing <laughs> part of the tech keynote and it's going to involve costume changes. But um, Atmosphere is free for everyone to attend this year. So I definitely recommend that you you do it, and it's it's some of it is you know Aruba specific, and there's a lot that's kind of generic across the networking industry. So it's I think it's a good com conference for anyone to show up to. Right, Aruba Atmosphere is uh, April 13th and 14th this year, and if you want to register for free, it's at arubanetworks.com/atmosphere. John, I for one want to see the costume changes. Uh, I'll try not to let you down. <laughs> All right. Well, that does wrap up our time. Uh, John, thanks for joining us. And thanks to Aruba for being a sponsor. You can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter. That's at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn, like us on Facebook and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.